go ahead and have a seat. Welcome to Village Church. If this is your first time here, my name's Steve. I'm one of the pastors here at Village Church. And as always, I'm thankful and grateful to see each and every one of you this morning. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to Joshua chapter 10. We're going to be starting in verse 1 there this morning. We're going to read most of the chapter, and then I'll talk about the whole chapter. Uh, but if you've been with us uh, throughout this series, or you haven't been with us throughout this series, understand that what we've seen thus far in the book of Joshua is God's faithfulness contrasted with humanity's unfaithfulness. Specifically in the book of Joshua, we've seen so many times where Israel has received the blessing of God and then they've responded by being unfaithful, by disobeying the very commands that would lead to the promises that God has offered them. And last Sunday specifically, we looked at the Gibeonites, how they successfully deceived Israel because Israel trusted their own discernment more than they trusted the wisdom of God. Yet in all of it, and specifically last week, we saw God's grace to the nation of Israel that while they were unfaithful, God was still faithful to deliver on his promises. He allowed them to have the land of the Gibeonites. But then in Joshua 10, what we're going to cover today, we're going to cover what really is one of my favorite narratives of Scripture because it focuses on both the faithfulness but also the power of God to deliver on what he has promised and just how far-reaching that power that he has as goes from the very beginning of Joshua, there is a continued focus on the people of Israel receiving the command from God that they needed to be strong, that they needed to be courageous. The foundation of that command really is the power of God and the faithfulness of God to fulfill every single one of the promises that he makes. You can have all the strength, you can have all the courage in the world, and without the power, without the faithfulness, without the promise of God, none of it's going to do you any good in Joshua 10, we're actually going to see how far-reaching that power of God is. We also see how committed He is to empower His people to be obedient to the commands that He's given us. The larger the miracle, the more fascinating the text is to me. I don't know if you know this or not, but even in Scripture, which is a miraculous book, miracles are not that common. Many, many decades, sometimes hundreds of years will take place in between the miracles that Scripture teaches us about. And so even in the Bible, the miraculous is uncommon. But what we're going to look at today is even more uncommon in the scope of the miracles of Scripture. It defies everything that we understand about the world. And that's really the point. Point is that God can do the miraculous because He created every ounce of this world. He created everything that exists. And I want you to pay attention throughout this narrative to both the implications and the applications that we're going to be able to make to our very lives that we live in this world because of God's power over every aspect of creation. I just want to start reading in Joshua 10 1. I'm going to read quite a few verses to begin. As soon as Adonai Zedek, the king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly. Because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were warriors. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hosham, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Jarmuth, to Japhia, king of Lachish, to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon. 
For it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, king of Hebron, king of Jarmuth, king of Lachish, and king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp of Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Haran, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. And that's only the second most spectacular miracle that we're going to talk about today. Number one this morning, I want you to glean from the text that faith demands aligning your life with God's purposes. Faith demands aligning your life with God's purposes. Joshua 10 starts much like Joshua 9 started with a reminder of the level of resistance that was standing against the nation of Israel. The rulers that were already in the promised land are now afraid of the nation of Israel because of all that had taken place. Now they're using a strategy to go against a small portion of the land that Israel had already taken in order to take it back. They were not going to seek to face Israel head on. Rather, they were going to seek to take Gibeon back and all the land that was provided. Because in their mind, if they can take Gibeon, they will be able to take Israel because of the might of the Gibeonites. This is a strategy that we need to understand takes place throughout all of Scripture when you're going to face the enemy standing against you. It's not always going to be a frontal assault. Instead, the enemy is going to be crafty. He will seek to find a foothold in your life, and it's rarely going to be the very place that you thought it was going to come from. It's not usually a Harry Potter movie that gives Satan a foothold in your life, regardless of what the legalist will tell you. Rather, Oftentimes it's going to be the place that you don't expect it to be. And in this sense, Joshua is probably expecting that the enemies are going to keep standing against him in the way that they've been standing against him over and over. As they make conquest, they're going to encounter the enemy. They're going to fight the enemy. God is going to deliver them into your hand. But understand that the enemy is going to use strategy. The king of Jerusalem gathers five other kings, just as we saw kings unite together against Israel last week. But now, instead of standing directly against Israel, they're going to try to get a foothold in Gibeon. And they're going to try to use that against the Israelites in order to take space in their lives. They're going to seek to be very underhanded. I'll tell you, the very place that you don't expect the enemy to seek strategy to discourage you in your life against taking hold of the promises of God is exactly the place that he's going to go after. What is it in life that discourages you? 
What is discouraging you from taking hold of entering into a calling or obeying a specific place in Scripture or repenting of a specific sin in your life? What is it that is discouraging you from doing that? And I will tell you that is exactly the place that the enemy is getting a foothold in the very life that you are living in this world. So this coalition of kings seeks to take back the land that Israel has already taken. Word is sent to Joshua. Joshua mobilizes the mighty men of Israel. They have to go down to face the enemy that are standing against them. And God gives Joshua a faithful reminder. I love the way that God does that throughout Scripture. Joshua is already mobilizing himself. But it's possible that Joshua is going to forget and God puts a reminder in his life. He looks at Joshua and he says, Joshua, don't be afraid of these people. Go, you're going to beat them. Not a single man is going to be able to stand against you. It always amazes me the spiritual amnesia that we often encounter when we're seeking to take hold of the promises of God in our lives. It's really sinful amnesia that brings doubt into the playing field of faith. You know, difficulty doesn't nullify the promises of God. Oftentimes, rather, difficulty reveals to us the need to strengthen our resolve against the resistance of the enemy. Because faith is always going to demand obedience to God. I often say it's not complicated, but it's very, very difficult. So many times we treat faith as though it is some type of enigma that we can't quite define. We can't quite wrap our minds around. If all that you understand is that faith is going to demand obedience from you towards God, that is a simple enough definition. Faith always demands you be obedient to God. And that is exactly the source you need to understand that the greatest discouragement is going to come into your life. You're going to be discouraged from obeying God and understand that every ounce of that discouragement is a temptation to unfaithfulness. And that is exactly what Satan wants to bring into your life. Faith is only ever found in aligning your life with God's purposes. It doesn't matter the difficulty and it doesn't matter the level of effort necessary. James 2.17 notes that faith without works is dead. It is useless it's not going to do you or anyone else in this world any good. Faith always propels you into a life of actively obeying the call of God in your life. When God demands faith from Joshua, it is a call to align his life with God's purposes. This is no different than God's call in Joshua chapter 1. So why does God bring this into his life? Because God loves to bring reminders into the lives of his people. Because you're forgetful. So often the spiritual warfare that takes place in your life is one by which you are so discouraged that you forget even the promises that God has made. And because you forget his promises, you believe that the resistance that you are going to encounter is insurmountable. You'll never get beyond the barrier that's in front of you in life. You'll never get through the hardship that you're dealing with in your life. You'll never endure the suffering to see the other side. You are never going to be able to live up to that which God has commanded you to take hold of. Do you not understand the source of such discouragement? It's always the enemy bringing that into your life. And so God faithfully brings a reminder into Joshua's mind. Joshua, I am going to deliver the enemy into your hand. Does he do this because it is a new promise? No, he does this because it is a reminder that Joshua needs to stay faithful. 
After your first step of obedience is over, do you know what the next step is? More obedience. Obedience upon obedience upon obedience upon obedience is how you build a life of following Jesus Christ. Therefore, what is going to be the way that you walk away from Jesus Christ? I need you to understand it's always going to be disobedience. God's made clear his calling on every one of our lives. He's made it clear through scripture. And so what is the temptation going to be? Well, the temptation is always going to be to disobey God. And we live as though we always remember that. Yet when a difficult moment comes in your life, what is the first thing that you do? You despair of the faithfulness of God. And when you despair of the faithfulness of God, you will lose your motivation to obey God. You'll cease the forward movement that God has called you. And I love the way that the text reads. It states that Joshua came upon the enemy suddenly. Sure, it might have been sudden for the Amorites, but it wasn't sudden for Joshua. What else does the text tell us? The text tells us Joshua had to march all night to get there. Most of what you do in life where obedience to God is concerned is not going to be seen by anybody else. The moment of the fight looks sudden to the enemy, but the preparation for what God has called you toward is sometimes going to take weeks, months, years of preparation in the dark. One of my mentors used to tell me, Steve, labor in absolute obscurity because no one is going to applaud the effort that it takes to build a life of faithfulness for you to be prepared in the moment that it is necessary, in the moment of temptation, in the moment of resistance, in the moment of hardship, in the moment of suffering. No one is going to applaud the years of faith building that it took to get you to that moment. So do you want to know where the discouragement usually comes? The discouragement usually comes when you're walking in the dark and nobody's looking. The discouragement comes during the process of preparation so that you will not be ready when the enemy strikes. Friends, if you live by the applause of man, you will not be prepared for what it takes. If you live for people to look at you and say thank you, you're never going to make it. If you live for people to look at you and say, you're doing a great job, you're never going to make it. Labor in obscurity to build the type of faith that's required for the unknowns that are going to happen in your life. When God demands faith from Joshua, it's a call to align his life with his purposes, which is going to put him in pursuit of a fight. That's different than the way most of us think about spiritual success. We don't like to think about it as a fight. We don't like to think about it as God is preparing us because we're going to face resistance and we're going to have to fight our way out of it. And we might think about that allegorically, but that's not the way it was Joshua. That's not what Joshua was facing. Joshua was literally going to have a physical fight in front of him and God is calling him to encounter it, to go towards it. So many of us spend our entire lives passive. We spend our lives avoiding battles. We spend our lives avoiding conflict of any kind. And that is going to cost you from seeing God work in amazing ways. Joshua was called by God to get into the battle. You should not spend your life looking for a fight. But we live in a time when people are convinced that the most effective game plan and the most successful game plan is going to be one of passivity. It's going to be one of avoidance. Friends, I need you to understand that that is what cowardice looks like. 
When God calls you to exhibit faith, it demands you always be prepared to fight for what God has called you towards. Because I don't know what you're dealing with right now, but understand that the fight is coming at some point. And for most of you, if you're going to have a faith worth living for, it's going to demand a fight at many points. When God calls you to exhibit faith, it demands you be prepared for battle because rather than weakness, friends, you should always seek to strengthen yourselves because I'm certain that scripture reveals a faith worth having is one that is going to encounter the fight and your avoidance won't win you the acclaim of an unbelieving world the way that you think it will. Rather, your avoidance is just going to lead to all of your neighbors and co-workers looking at you and thinking, well, he's just like me. He or she must not have anything that I need in my life. It's through the type of faith that demands a cost be paid that you're going to reveal the difference between yourself and other people. All that many people reveal in this life is a dead faith that isn't worth having. Because when you march all night and then get into the fight that God calls you towards, you just might see God throw down large stones from heaven to give you an advantage. What a sight. Think about that, Joshua and all of the mighty men. They march all night long. They start fighting. They're like, okay, I guess we got this. Oh, I guess God has this. Must have been such a sight. Text describes them hailstones. I prefer to think of them as large boulders. Rocks being thrown from heaven. However, the look of them, the text is very clear. This was no simple hailstorm, rather. It says that God himself sent down stones to fall on the enemy. Note the precision of the miracle as it didn't fall on any of the Israelites, according to the text. God gives the victory, but understand God in this instance defined the victory would come through his hand being involved. The text is clear. It says that the stones that fell from the skies killed more of the Amorites than the Israelites themselves killed by the sword. I can't even imagine what that must have been like in the moment of battle. And so when you start reading stories like this and the skeptics try to make you doubt the miraculous, understand that according to John chapter 1 through 1, 3, all things were made through the hand of Jesus Christ. And without Jesus, there was not anything made that was made. This is his world. And so the miraculous is God choosing to either bend natural law or break his natural law completely to bring about his purposes in a moment where he does not want there to be confusion over who is to get the glory out of that situation. God wanted to shout loud and clear, victory was from his hand. But note the process that Joshua and the mighty men had to go through in order to see the miracle. Number two this morning, I want you to understand that God responds to faithful obedience. God responds to faithful obedience. In verse 12, we continue. The text says, at that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the, in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. I don't know if he forgot to have his quiet time that morning, but Joshua's in the middle of a fight, and he says, you know what, this is a good time for prayer. And he said, in the sight of Israel, sun stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Aijalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance upon their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jashar? 
the sun stopped in the midst of heaven, did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like this before or since, when the Lord heeded the voice of man, for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned, and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. These five kings fled and hid themselves in the cave at Makeda. And it was told to Joshua, The five kings have been found hidden in the cave at Makeda. And Joshua said, Roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. But do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies. Attack their rear guard. Do not let them enter their cities. For the Lord your God has given them into your hand. When Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out, and when the remnant that remained of them had entered into the fortified cities. Then all the people returned safe to Joshua in the camp at Makeda. Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. Of course, I'd be afraid to speak against them too at that point. As I said, the stones falling from heaven, that's only the second most amazing miracle of that day. But what I love is everything that took place around this great request and God giving in to the request that Joshua made of the sun standing still. Now, I don't know if that means that the earth stopped rotating. I don't know if that means that the earth stopped an axis. Trust me, I know. I've heard from all of the skeptics that if any of that had taken place, every single person at one time on earth would have died, unless the very person that designed the earth decided that not every person would die in this miracle. I don't know how the miracle took place, but I absolutely believe that God made the day as long as he wanted to make it on that day in response to the prayer of Joshua. But what I love to consider is everything that took place before, during, and after that miracle was defined by postures of obedience to God. Years ago, I heard someone respond to this miracle and make the statement that if you want to see the sun stand still, sometimes you have to march all night. The miracles of Scripture are, of course, fascinating. This is probably, in my opinion, outside of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, one of the most amazing miracles of all of Scripture. But once you accept that God has the ability to raise the dead, it's not difficult to begin to accept all of the other miraculous events that take place in Scripture. Joshua makes the request of God. God, make the sun stand still. And it's fascinating because his prayer isn't dressed up with all of the language. I mean, he didn't even begin with dear Heavenly Father. What kind of prayer doesn't start with dear Heavenly Father? I've often realized that the greatest prayers of our lives are rarely the ones that are scripted. The moments that move your faith the most are rarely the ones that take place in King James English. It's rarely the ones that are adorned with all 33 names of God that you've memorized in the original language. I used to pray with guys in my dorm at the college that I went to, and there was just this one guy. Can I just be honest? I hated the way he prayed. I could not wait till he was done. Because he wouldn't stop saying, Most gracious Heavenly Father. And he would insert it in places where I was like, I don't think God wanted it there. Doesn't even make sense. That doesn't fit the sentence. I don't even know what the subject is. I don't know what the verb is. I don't even know what you're doing at this point. Would you just get on with it, man? You're not better than me. I know you've done that when other people have prayed at Thanksgiving. You're just hungry. You don't want to hear the script. 
But the most powerful prayers of our lives, I think, I really am convinced, are just going to come in moments of necessity. Moments where we've reached the end of our strength and we realize the foolishness of depending on our strength and we just say, God, do something. May not be exactly God do something. It might be as simple as this. Joshua looks to the heavens and he says, sun stands still. Doesn't even sound like he's talking to God. Sounds kind of like he's trying to be God in that moment. But we know that he isn't because of his faithfulness to God. Joshua, before this miracle, received the command of God, go, fight, win. Joshua marches all night. The Amorites look and they say, he is suddenly coming upon us. They are defeating us. And I think in that moment, Joshua, the commander of the army, he realizes there's not enough daylight left for me to obey the full command of God. I need more sunlight so that I can make sure not a single one of them are standing against us. And so Joshua's prayer comes from a heart of obedience obedience. And he says, God, move heaven and earth. Why? So that I can obey you. So that I can fulfill your calling on my life. So many of us, we spend all of our energy doing what we are capable of in our own wisdom by the rules of what we think we are capable of, our potential, what the world says is possible from us. Friend, I will tell you prayer is an invitation into the realm of what may not be possible by your hands, but that which is always possible through the hands of God. I'm challenged by the faith of Joshua here. I've never been in a position like Joshua is in this passage, obviously. I've also never asked God for anything quite as big as Joshua has in his moment of need in this instance. But of course, friends, when you consider that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, there really isn't anything outside of God's capabilities, is there? Maybe the most amazing prayer in all of Scripture is the one that you see right here. And I think it is remarkable because in that moment, Joshua may have been tempted to be discouraged. Because he may be thinking to himself, I'm going to lose the tactical advantage. I can't fight in the dark. I need a tactical advantage. And if he thinks he's losing that, there's probably this temptation to be discouraged, this temptation to despair. I mean, all that we've seen out of Israel is they have just enough faith to be unfaithful. They have just enough encouragement to be completely discouraged. And so often we get so discouraged so often by not just what we see going on in the world, but what we see happen in our very lives. The setbacks, the heartaches, the suffering, the hardships. And it drives us to despair when it ought to drive us to prayer. When instead of discouragement and despair, instead of unfaithfulness, instead of, instead of disobedience, I wish I had the faith of Joshua to have the type of faith where I would look at it and say, God, nothing is going to stop me from obeying you, not even darkness. Sun, stand still. I will obey the call of God in my life. Jesus himself commands us in Luke 18, 1. I like parables where Jesus gives us what they mean before he confuses us. In Luke 18, 1, he explains the parable first. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. 
Losing heart is what it means to be discouraged. It's what it means to be despair. And so I ask you, how often do you pray versus how often do you lose heart? How often do you give in to the temptation of discouragement and depression instead of deciding to just pick up where he left off in the morning? Because that could have been an option for Joshua. He had the audacious faith to ask God to make the day longer. I've never seen that. But God did it. God responded. God said, yes. Do I believe this is real? Absolutely, I believe it. But I want to know how Joshua did it. I need you to understand this morning that you have to obey God to know what to ask from God. Amen. That's what puts you in this type of posture. How do, you, how do you know when this kind of prayer is appropriate? Because, I mean, there's a temptation to read this and walk out the door like so many who've been deceived by false teaching and they just start shouting, sun stand still for the fun of it and say, oh, well, it didn't work. I don't have faith. That's just foolishness. So don't do that this evening at sunset, friends. I don't think the sun's going to stand still because I don't think you get what's actually going on in this passage. The more you align your life with the purposes of God, the more you will know how to pray because your thoughts will begin to align with God's thoughts. In Psalm 37, it says... That God will give you the desires of your heart. That passage isn't about him being a cosmic genie. It is about God realigning your life with his purposes so that the things that God wants are the things that you desire. So where God is calling you is exactly where you want to go. The usual problem with prayer is not that you need to take a class on prayer. It's not that you need to read another book on prayer. The fact is that the strength of your prayer life will never outgrow your level of obedience to God. I want to say that again. The strength of your prayer life will never outgrow your level of obedience to God. We struggle to know how to pray because we aren't focused on aligning our lives with God's purposes. Friend, if you want to pray the kinds of prayers that God answers, start obeying the commands that God has given. The way that we think about prayer, I think so often is so wrong. People ask me, they say, Steve, how do you begin prayers? And I always tell them I begin with the word of God. And they'll say, well, that's not what I meant. And I say, I know that's not what you meant, but that's your problem. Prayer is not a monologue where I just take everything that I need, everything that I want to God, and then I'm done. Prayer begins by receiving the conversation that God has started. God starts the conversation with his word. How will I know how to pray if I don't know the mind of God, if I don't know the heart of God, if I don't know the desires of God, if I don't realize that the gospel realigns my heart and actually teaches me what I need to want, what I need to know, what I need to chase after with my life. And so it is when I have received the word that I respond to the word in prayer. That I go back to God in dialogue with him. That is a conversation between me and God. And it always moves me to realizing there's more and more of my life to align with more and more of God's purposes. And the more and more of his word I receive, the more and more of my life is turned towards him. 
That is how your thoughts become God's thoughts. That is how your heart becomes the very heart of God. And that is how you begin to live a life where the world sees the work of God in your life. There was no mistaking that day the work of God in the life of Israel. Starts with stones. It ends with a full extra day almost of daylight, the text tells us. Our God is a God of action. He is a God of authority. Can you imagine the enemies running from Israel? Can you imagine how confused they must have been that day? They said, we came for a fight. Now we're getting killed by the weather and the sun won't go down. <laughs> I can only imagine that the commanders of the Amorites are sitting there like, all right, whew, we're taking it on the chin right now. But as soon as the sun goes down, we can regroup. Well, that's not working. can only imagine how confused they are. They've heard that God is on the side of Israel. I tell you, there's no doubt in the cave that held those five kings that day. They knew who the God of Israel was, and they knew that he was powerful. Friend, the world needs to see faithful commitment to God from the people of God. And that is how you see the move of God. How terrifying must it have been that day to be on the other side? Because I tell you, the moves of God, they either work to your benefit or to your judgment. There's no other option under the sun. That was the day that they realized that the God of Israel was not only real, but they must have realized that he was sovereign over all of creation. So often we lose sight of the greatest apologetic, the greatest defense of our faith in Jesus Christ is a life given completely over to the reign of King Jesus in our lives because of the truth of who he is. It isn't necessarily going to be an academic argument. In Revelation 19, the timing of this text is debatable, but the message is the same. John writes and he says, I saw heaven opened. Behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called the word of God. The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Friends, we do not serve a God who is asking the world for permission to reign. We serve a God who is king over every ounce of the creation that came from his mouth. If you want people to see the reality of God in your life, take a posture in your life as though you believe that is who Jesus Christ is. Our God reigns and he demands submission. And that day the Amorites found that out to their detriment. Friends, submit to God through the gospel so that it can be to your benefit eternally. Through a life of faithful commitment to the call of God, the world 
will see the truth of who he is. Because number three this morning, when you move with God, you will see God move. When you move with God, you will see God move. Joshua chapter one, when he says, don't be afraid, be strong, be courageous, don't be frightened. The Lord your God is going to go with you wherever you go. He is not talking about theoretical strength and courage. The text continues to prove that over and over because strength and courage always require movement from God's people. I don't think this command can be isolated to just Israel the way some Old Testament passages can. Jesus himself made multiple passages of encountering difficulty and don't be afraid of them. The New Testament is filled with reminders for strength and courage as we seek to follow Jesus Christ in this world. But when you put yourself into a position, friends, to flex both strength and courage, it is amazing to see how God will move in your life. We'll not read it, but the rest of Joshua 10 covers the southern conquest through the promised land. Those five kings that they hid in a cave, they roll that stone back, they kill them. Then the conquest continues. They take the entire southern province of the promised land. Looking at the context, it may feel as though it is a strange thing to state, and Joshua is going to state yet again Israel's need to have strength and Israel's need to have courage. That is how he celebrated the victory. Because it is in the moment of victory that you always need to be reminded of the next conflict. One victory can lead to many unless you just stand there and don't move. God is calling you to continue to move throughout his world. He's calling you to continue to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ in this world. And when you do that, that victory is going to be proceeded by yet another form of resistance. And in the moment of victory, that is why you always need to be reminded of the strength and the courage that's going to be continually needed and available for you tomorrow with its battles. Never forget the victories God has brought into your life in the next moment of difficulty. Don't do it. God promises the victory but demands obedience. You cannot obey God's call to strength and courage while you are standing still. It's going to require forward momentum. And so I ask you, where are you? Are you moving forward? Are you standing in the same spot that you've been stagnating in? For weeks, maybe months, maybe years. So I ask you, why are you still? Why won't you move? It's not that you can't move. The scripture's clear. God calls us towards it. And if he calls you towards it, you can do it. It's that you won't move. But if you won't move, you will not see God move. You must form a vision of faithfulness over the long haul of your life. If you look again back to the book of Revelation, in Revelation 2, 26 through 27, you see the promise of life moving with God. It says, the one who conquers, who keeps my works until the end, 
To him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. Jesus is speaking to us, and he's telling us, do you want to see me move? See, Jesus has already conquered in this passage. Jesus has already kept the works in this passage. And he looks to you and he says, through my strength, you do the same. Keep moving. Till when, Lord? Until the end. When is that? He knows. He knows. I have only the command to be faithful until the moment of his choosing. It's a conquering life under the rule of God. We're called to endure in the calling of God because the gospel of Jesus Christ has promised the people of God victory over the entire world. It's not just the promised land. It's all of it. And it's all God's through the reign of Jesus Christ because he is the risen Savior and King. And so I ask you, what territory are you taking right now? What territory are you taking? For some of you, it's a territory that needs to be taken in your own life. Some of you are letting sin reign where Jesus Christ is king. What treason? What sin do you need to repent of to show that Jesus is king over your life? For some of you, the gospel is yet still only theoretical mastery for you. You can say all the right things. You can speak all the right terms. You can talk the talk, but you're not walking the walk. It's all theoretical to you. You're not being made into a disciple, and you certainly aren't making disciples. What's holding you back? Friend, you need to move with God. It's not that you need the sun to stand still. It's that you need to obey God to even know when to ask him to move. So I tell you, follow Jesus Christ. Get going somewhere with the gospel. A few application points this morning. First, move your life to the purposes of God. It's not complicated, but it's difficult. <laughs> Some of you might respond to such a statement and say, oh, well, I don't feel like it. I need to wait until I feel like it. No. Move your heart and then God will make you feel like it. That's the way that it always works. Where you want your heart is where you need to put your treasure. Secondly, build a life of obedient faith. Build a life of obedient faith. Thirdly, ask God to work in your life. And so I don't know. What to ask him for? Exactly. Receive before you respond. God has made it clear in his word. Fourthly, do things that show your faith. You say, what things? Something. Some of you just need to start with something. Do something to show that you believe Jesus Christ is the king of the world. And then finally... Live to show the reign of God in your life. Make that your pursuit because God has already made it your calling. 